Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, the price of food is on the rise and a main reason is climate change. And Exxon knew the truth about climate change decades ago and covered it up. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Food prices are up all over the grocery store, but the cost of eggs has almost hit the breaking point. In a month's time, they've about doubled in price. J.C. Esler is the Texas Poultry Federation's executive vice president. He says there are many reasons why eggs have gotten so expensive. Price reflects many factors. One is the inflation. Other is a supply chain issue. And also, unfortunately, we're also dealing with uh, bird flu, which is limiting supply. So when you say inflation, that you're dealing with your own inflationary cost uh, increase for feed and maintenance of uh, hatcheries and things like that? Correct. Um, Fuel, transportation of product, feed, eggs to market, eggs to processing plants. So fuel costs. Feed cost, um, just like everything, um, it, it we, we also have to have fuel. This is extra pressure, which is a bird flu. Correct. A uh, good thing is, is in the state of Texas, we have not had a commercial egg layer with an issue. However, in the United States, um, there has been um, some farms that have had issues with bird flu, and that does mini- uh, uh, reduce the production of, of eggs as a whole for the U.S. Uh, the demand is out there. There's a limited supply. Price goes up. That's just the way things work. Supply and demand, yes, sir. Uh, egg uh, is a staple. It's hard for people to say, I'm not going to buy eggs this week. People- I would say to you that the, you know, we cannot pr- predict the future on, you know, uh, a disease issue, but we can the the holiday market is a high market and we've just made it through that we do hope and sh- uh, to see that you know um a little bit less demand on the market so that the pricing the price should hopefully will start to um level level that back down to reasonable to to where we're at and what do you see as the uh, downstream effects for having uh, higher prices for eggs in the market? You know, so uh, people's like a breakfast place is going to have higher cost. Bakery is going to have higher cost. This is um, something that it's, it's do you see this as something that's going to add to more inflationary pressure? I mean, I can't, I'm not going to speak on other people's where it's going um, as on that aspect. Like I said, from, from our Texas farmers, we are trying to produce and we are producing a good high quality protein source. Um, we are trying producing it at our um, level that we can. Unfortunately, um, there are market aspects that, you know, that are, increasing or current increase in the price but hopefully 
again, in the future, in, in the near future, we'll see that demand um, from the holiday market maintain off, kind of get to a uh, better price point. Right. So the big question is, what came first, the chicken, the egg, or inflation? <laughs> I'm not going to end that question. <laughs> I get in trouble. All right, sir. Thank you so much. J.C. Esler is the Texas Poultry Federation's executive vice president. He didn't say that climate change is driving up the price for eggs, but he did mention the increase in the cost of feed. Feed prices are up about 30%. Growing the grain for chickens and other livestock has been impacted by the warming, dry, and unpredictable weather, and that is driving up food prices. A new report from the Texas Department of Agriculture and the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley highlights that climate change as a cause for rising food insecurity. According to the Food Access Study, 2022 was one of the driest years on record for Texas. Many farmers across the state saw reduced yields due to the drought and prolonged high temperatures that stressed crops. According to the report, Drought is expected to continue in Texas for decades. Edwin Marty is the food policy manager for the city of Austin. He says the impacts of climate change on food access and affordability is becoming more and more obvious. We are very aware of the data and very aware of the trends in Texas. Um, without question, data scientists uh, can very clearly show that we are seeing um, the unfortunate impacts of climate change in Texas, which is very simply put, uh, an increase in the extremities of weather patterns. So by weather patterns, we mean things that happen seasonally and annually. Um, by extremities, we mean uh, the temperatures are hotter, colder, wetter, and drier. Um, and that seems like a contradiction, but that's the very essence of climate change that we're seeing. Um, and again, the data backs us up very clearly here in Texas that we have had um, greater extremities in warm days, hot days in the summer, cold days in the winter, uh, more floods, and then more drought. And so right now, the cycle is playing out, unfortunately, um, against agriculture in Texas, where we're in the middle of a pretty extreme drought. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing incredibly hot temperatures during the summer and incredibly cold temperatures in the winter. So from an agricultural perspective, where we sit, uh, it's not good. We hear from local producers in central Texas that it's very difficult to produce fruits and vegetables and to raise animals in an environment that's both unpredictable and extreme. Um, agriculture tends to do better in places where you have predictability, where you have moderate temperatures and a minimal amount of flooding and, and fewer droughts. Right now we're seeing droughts um, with spikes of floods, hot temperatures, cold temperatures. All of that said, it just makes it much more difficult to produce good food. Um, and every producer that I know of is suffering from that. So we're seeing... Um, very challenging situations, especially for fruit and vegetable producers in central Texas. It's just very difficult to get. Basically, you need about 75, 80 days between when you drop the seed in the ground and when you harvest that crop. Um, it's very difficult to get um, that period of time with a consistent temperature and consistent rainfall. If you get spikes in temperature, if you get drought, or if you get extreme wet conditions, um, the plants that you're 
planting will not produce in a reliable and consistent way, which makes basically being a profitable farmer incredibly challenging. The real challenge, though, is we're going to see more of this in the future. All of the data points to the fact that we're going to see even greater extremes moving forward. So um, it's a very challenging environment for producers in Texas and here in Central Texas specifically trying to prepare for and plan for these extreme temperatures. So for most people, that translates to higher prices at the grocery store. And we can see that now uh, with lots of items that are typically on people's shopping list, you know, eggs, but also meat. Uh, this last summer, uh, during the extreme heat that Texas experienced, a lot of cattle producers had to sell off uh, heads of their stock and trying to reduce their herd because they couldn't find enough hay to feed them. And so they had to sell off and now we're seeing that as uh, increased prices for meat at the grocery store, and then everything else is also going up at the grocery store. We can say it's inflation, but what is inflation? It's, you know, frequently there are actual uh, drivers of increased prices through supply and demand that's causing those prices to go up. So do you think people are paying more at the grocery store because the lack of availability of food due to climate change? Uh, without question. I mean, absolutely. Zero question. So the the complex part of this equation is um, as the consumer is shopping for groceries, which, you know, the data points unquestionably, we're paying a lot more for groceries today than we were even last year or a couple of years ago. Uh, one might think, oh, that's probably good for the farmer because prices are up and they're able to, you know, charge more for their product. Unfortunately, for most of the producers that I know, um, the reality is the input costs for the production have gone up exponentially more than they're able to charge for their product. And so essentially what that means is it costs more to produce the food now. Therefore, farmers are charging more, producers are charging more, but they're not able to charge enough to cover the cost of the increase in inputs. So without question, climate change, because of those extremities, is causing the cost of inputs on across the board in agriculture to increase at a rate that is not proportionate to the amount of money that producers can actually charge for their products. So while the products that consumers are paying for are more expensive, it unfortunately is still translating to a very difficult environment for farmers where they're just not able to actually make a profit. So um, yes, my Pricing is going up for consumers, but it's also just as bad for the farmer in that they're not able to remain profitable. So we don't see a particularly good environment for the future of food production across the state of Texas. And uh, the report that just came out does a really good job of pointing to some uh, some structural challenges that we've got in front of us and the climactic challenges in front of us. Um, so it's refreshing to see the honest assessment of what we perceive as a very difficult future for food production in Texas. So as consumers are dealing with, you know, stagnant wages and inflationary pressures, uh, you know, rent still going up and then now food's also going up, they're having to shop for lower quality proteins in order to make that uh, kitchen budget stretch out. And so they're switching to more like dollar store type proteins you know, potted meats and other things. Maybe that's why eggs, there's also a greater demand for eggs as the prices are going up because of uh, that's also a, a, a high-quality protein that's typically cheap, but not so much anymore. 
So how do you think uh, consumers are adjusting to what's happening? Yeah, I mean, it's a really grim situation, especially here in Austin, where we have not only inflation from a consumer product perspective, but um, across the board, rent, um, the cost of housing has just skyrocketed. So um, low-income consumers in Central Texas and the Austin area are facing a really difficult challenge where, you know, food insecurity is essentially, um, to boil it down, a byproduct of difficult financial situations. So when your rent goes up, when transportation costs go up, when healthcare costs go up, um, the last thing that you have in your budget is some level of flexibility around the kind of foods that you purchase. And so food insecurity is essentially families uh, having to make difficult decisions about what they're going to pay. And um, unfortunately, food is the thing that's most flexible often in people's budgets. And so they're making difficult decisions about either buying lower quality or lower quantity of foods. Um, we're seeing that play out in communities. Um, fortunately, up until up until actually current this month, um, the federal government has been providing some, um, some uh, support in the amount of money that low-income families receive through uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, otherwise known as SNAP. Um, SNAP benefits increased during COVID to um, compensate for a lot of the economic challenges that families are facing. Unfortunately, those COVID uh, SNAP benefits are going to uh, end in the next month. Um, so the low-income families are not only facing inflation, not only facing rising costs of living across the board, they're also going to see um, the federal benefit program substantially decrease. So we're really concerned. Um, we need to take this very seriously. It's going to have, unfortunately, uh, a disproportionate impact on Black and Latino families across our community. Um, Latino families uh, disproportionately are low-income um, we're going to have to do some really deep thinking about how to create better opportunities to, to limit the impact of food insecurity. Um, you know, unfortunately, the data points to the most vulnerable in our community. Children of Black and Latino families are going to really be, um, unfortunately, shouldering the burden of this sort of trifecta of challenges. Um, and that has shown across time to be the worst case scenario where uh, when children don't get adequate nutrition, they don't develop into, you know, the kind of people that they could be. And they face a lot of challenges. And those challenges are decades, if not generational. Um, so right now, we're really up against the wall in terms of trying to come up with some good solutions to mitigate these challenges. Uh, again, the report that just came out does a really good job of indicating some of those challenges and it points to some potential strategies that we as a state could look to, uh, to potentially do a better job of addressing these complex challenges. I think it is worth noting that food systems are often a complicated thing from a governmental perspective because there's no single governmental organization that looks or regulates the food system. There are multiple branches of the government like the USDA, the FDA, et cetera, that regulate and influence our food system. But each one of those often act within a silo. Their only responsibility is one part of the food system. 
And unfortunately, when we see something like climate change impacting every part of the food system, we lack the overview and sort of the understanding of the integrated nature of the food system, how a policy or program in one department might seem like a good idea unless you look at it from the broader spectrum of entire system. So as people switch to lower quality proteins uh, the, because they're cheaper and that's, and that's all they can afford right now, it means they're switching to a food product that's typically going to have more salt and phosphates in it, which we know is not good for the long-term health. There's that part of it as well, uh, high blood pressure, uh, higher risk to uh, cancers, uh, more risk of diabetes. Absolutely. In fact, I was just on a call yesterday with uh, the University of Texas who had just released a, what they call an agent-based model that looked at um, the environmental changes that we could create impact on vegetable consumption, specifically amongst low-income populations. The critical part here is we know without question that eating more vegetables, specifically fruits and vegetables, but we'll just focus on the vegetable component, increases quality of life across the board. Basically, people that eat more vegetables live longer, have fewer uh, disease issues, um, radically reduce the uh, rates of diabetes, etc. So how do we get people to eat more vegetables? Uh, one of the things that this agent-based model um, study looked at was decreasing the cost of vegetables and increasing the ability and the accessibility of those um, products. And so uh, one of the things I think that we need to do as a local government, as a state government, and certainly as a federal government is look at every single opportunity to decrease the cost of high quality vegetables and increase their availability in neighborhoods that perhaps lack that. Um, there's a lots of good ideas out there, but there's not a single silver bullet. Um, these are complex problems that require complex answers um, and complex solutions that need to be integrated at multiple levels of both government and the private sector. So how do we increase the, um, the availability of, of high-quality fruits and vegetables in a community at the right price? Uh, there really is not an answer that doesn't include some version of a subsidization or incentivization program, and that means money. And so the federal government, the state government, the local government all have a potential opportunity to decrease the cost of the kind of foods that we know low-income populations need to be eating more of. Right, but I, I should point out that there are government subsidies for food items right now, but that tends to be for corn which turns into high fructose corn syrup, which turns into soda pop. So we have government subsidies for unhealthy foods. We're just asking, can we do the same for healthy foods? Absolutely. You've put it very eloquently. Um, I would say that almost every single food product that you would see in the grocery store has some version of a subsidization or an incentivization from some level of the U.S. government. Um, and I think it is important for us as consumers to really understand the incredible influence that our government's um, approach to the food system has. We subsidize gasoline. We subsidize uh, various forms of uh, conventional large-scale agriculture. And we certainly subsidize uh, what we call um, conventional ranching. We could just as easily be subsidizing high-quality, locally produced fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, there are small incentives for those programs, 
but comparatively to the kind of subsidizations that we provide for other aspects of our food system, it is absolutely minimal, I would say even minuscule. And uh, it's important to recognize we as a federal government, as a, as a, as a nation, radically subsidize the sugar industry. Um, we do that because we think it's a national security issue. I would say perhaps we could look at uh, access to affordable fresh fruits and vegetables in a similar fashion that I would say that for us as a community uh, to have long-term sustainability and long-term resilience, we have to have better access to affordable uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. And so um, it's just a conversation that we need to have at every level of our government and in every single community. How do we push for that? How do we make sure that our elected officials understand how critical of a conversation this is? Edwin Marty is the food policy manager for the city of Austin. We have a link to the Texas Department of Agriculture report on food access and climate change on our website at tpr.org. For many, the impact of climate change is no surprise. The science has been clear for decades that mankind's burning of fossil fuel is dumping carbon into the atmosphere and that is trapping heat, thus warming the planet and changing the climate. But one of the first organizations to realize this was ExxonMobil. Scientists working for the Texas-based petroleum giant recognized as early as the 1970s that global warming is real, even as the company was making public statements contradicting these conclusions. That's according to a new study published this week in the journal Science. Apparently, Exxon didn't just confirm that climate change is real, but it was able to forecast the coming planet warming with precision equal to or better than the government or academic scientist. Naomi Oreskes is a Harvard science history professor and a co-author of the study. I think what's important about our new work is the specificity. So we've known for quite a while, based on our own previous work and work by reporters at the Los Angeles Times and Inside Climate News, that ExxonMobil scientists had been working on the climate change issue back in the 70s and 80s, and that they had communicated their work to their managers. Uh, and that's where the hashtag Exxon knew came from. But sometimes I think when we say Exxon knew, it invites the question, well, knew what exactly? And so our new study answers that question. It answers it exactly. And what we did was to compile a set of climate projections that ExxonMobil scientists had either made themselves or had compiled from academic literature at that time, which they used then to make quantitative projections of what climate change would look like. And they projected that over the coming decades, burning fossil fuels was going to heat the planet by 0.2 degrees per decade, and that the effects would become evident by the year 2000. And as we all now know, those predictions have come true. So what we see in this work is that the ExxonMobil scientists were doing work of a very high level of, of precision um, and, in hindsight, a very high level of accuracy. Did this information get to the desk of Rex Tillerson, people high up in Exxon, who, who were the shot callers? Well, we can't prove for sure that it got to Rex Tillerson. We, you know, we would have to have access to internal uh, industry documents, which the company has not surprisingly not chosen to make public. But we certainly know that these things were circulated among ExxonMobil managers, including some fairly high-level managers uh, like Ed David, but I believe he was the vice president for research and development and was a former science advisor to President Richard Nixon. 
So we know from the cover letters and the CC lines that high-level ExxonMobil managers were certainly aware of this information. So we could think, like, uh, because we didn't have this information, because uh, ExxonMobil kept it to themselves, not only did they keep the information to themselves, but they were actively uh, in a disinformation campaign about climate change for, for decades. But how much harm did that do? Well, I think it did tremendous harm. I'm a historian, so of course we can never prove a negative. We can't prove the reasons for why something did not happen. But we certainly have very strong evidence that uh, in the late 80s, there was significant political attention beginning to be paid to this uh, issue. That's why in 1992, World Nations gathered and signed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. One of the signatories to that was President George H.W. Bush, who declared that he was committed to um, taking the written words in the document and turning them into concrete action to protect the planet. But we also know that just around that time is when ExxonMobil and its other allies began to fight back, began to spread disinformation, began to you know, challenge the scientific evidence, challenge the idea that we needed to act, lobby Congress extremely heavily not to approve the Kyoto Protocol to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And we also know that there was tremendous pressure on the Bush administration itself from the fossil fuel industry um, not to take action on climate change. So when you add all these things together, it's a pretty strong circumstantial case. We had the science, we had political momentum, we even had conservative political leaders like President Bush um, saying that they were committed to acting on this, but then we didn't act. And there's a kind of reversal that takes place in the mid-1990s from a commitment to act to a commitment not to act. And we think it's certainly plausible to argue that fossil fuel lobbying and disinformation was a significant factor in that reversal. So lost time. It had good information uh, gotten to policymakers and without uh, so much disinformation and active uh, attempts to suppress that. We would have been in a better position than we are now. Well, I certainly think that it's highly plausible to make that argument. Again, as I said, we have enormous amounts of evidence. I mean, younger listeners may not have been alive at that time or people may not remember, but there was enormous political will in the 1990s to do something about this problem. There were even bills introduced into Congress um, to address them. But the fossil fuel industry and its allies in conservative and libertarian think tanks, its allies in the auto industry, its allies in the aluminum industry, fought tooth and nail to prevent climate action and to confuse the American people about it, to run disinformation campaigns because they knew, and this we do have proof of because we have their own documents, they knew that if people thought the science was uncertain, that people would not support policy action. And so they consciously worked through advertising, marketing, public relations and the like to create a message that the science was highly uncertain. And that's what our new study, I mean, that's really the I think where the new study has bite. In particular, we know that in the 1990s and 2000s, ExxonMobil spokesmen, including their CEOs, Lee Raymond and then Rex Tillerson, repeatedly said in public uh, that climate models weren't reliable, that they were too uncertain to form a basis for decision-making. And yet here we have proof that their own scientists were building climate models that turned out to be extremely reliable and that they were, you know, we have, well, we have reason to believe that they were highly aware of this work, and but in public, uh, they denigrated the science, trying to persuade the American people and our political leaders 
uh, that the science wasn't strong enough to make decisions about it. Any indication in the, what you've read in your memos and things that you read where they some people may say, uh, hey, guys, we're talking about the future of the planet. What what good is it to have a great quarter if we're jeopardizing the planet? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. Again, I think we'd have to get more deeply into the corporate archives to be able to find that. I'm sure that somewhere in the Exxon corporate archives, someone did say that because certainly we see that in the tobacco uh, archives where I've done a lot of research. I mean, we certainly see many places in the tobacco industry records where someone does say, you know, hey, hello, Houston, we have a problem. And one of the most memorable examples of that from the tobacco story that I came across was a document that was discussing the evidence of the harms of secondhand smoke. There was a point in the 1990s where it became clear that secondhand smoke killed people. And did not only did it kill grown-ups like bartenders and waitresses and flight attendants, it killed children. And in fact, there was strong scientific evidence that secondhand smoke caused sudden infant death syndrome. And there's a memo about this. And in response, one of the executives says, we can't let our salesmen know this. Naomi Oreskes is a Harvard scientist history professor and a co-author of the study Assessing ExxonMobil's Global Warming Projections. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past Texas Matters programs available on our website at tpr.org. And you can like and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.